A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, fi who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think um, on these words of Scripture, this moment in the life of Jesus, that you would help us to enter in, to see, to behold, to understand, and that we might be individuals that respond uh, in faith to Jesus' authority. So meet us, we pray, uh, in his name. Amen. So uh, thanks, Cindy, for that wonderful announcement. It's infectious. Like, I kind of want to go to Israel, you know? Like, I don't know. It sounds pretty amazing to me. Um, 
And, uh, and, and particularly as you read the Gospels, you know, knowing something of the geography seems like it might be important. So this fall, we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and I think when, whenever we th- read the Gospels, you know, we, we've sort of taken that, we said this last week, right? We said that we've taken this word gospel and it's become this uber religious word, right? It's like it is tagged to Jesus through and through. But in, in Jesus's day and Mark's day, it was not. It was uh, it could be used for a simple announcement about some, some happy event uh, that you might, maybe you'd talk about the gospel of the birth of your child or something or your wedding or whatever. But, uh, but politically, in particular, it, it was used to, to talk about and proclaim uh, the rule of Caesar, right, the, the, the peace of Rome. And which we know was, was an unequal peace. Not everybody experienced it. And it was not uh, good news, really, for everyone that heard it, right? Because it was a land of inequality. It was a world of inequality and tremendous uh, inequality of justice, right? There was not, justice didn't flow everywhere. Um, and so some people would receive that news of Caesar's reign as good news because life was working for them. They had power, right? They had authority and, and they kept some of it. And for other people would, would receive the news of Rome's uh, greatness uh, with despair because it meant they would have less. Um, and so th- this is the reality of the world in which the gospel is written. And when Mark chooses to sort of link this word gospel to the story of Jesus' life, he very intentionally, he's, being, he's, you know, he's, he's, um, he's disrupting things. And he's essentially, anybody in that context that would have heard of the gospel of Jesus would have said, how is this gospel different, right? What, what is different about Jesus as a Messiah? What is different with him about, about him as a Lord, as a king? What is different uh, about the reign of, his, of his, uh, his domain, his kingdom? Uh, what's different about Jesus? And Mark, of course, wants us to see that his kingdom is good news, that Jesus himself is, is the bringer of good news because he is good news. Um, and so that's the context in which we begin to read. And so as we read through the Gospels, one of the things we're going to find is that provocation just keeps happening, right? This contrast keeps happening. And, uh, and that's going to be challenging for us, as we said last week, because I have to decide, do I want the real Jesus to interfere with my life? Do I want him to interact with the real me, with my real story, right? Am I open to that on the one hand? And then secondly, am I, am I open to the kind of change that he promises and he brings? Or would I rather live with the status quo? I mean, that's always sort of the challenge for us when we read about the person of Jesus. Will we be open to him and will we be open to his kingdom? And you might think right off the, you know, if you're thinking about that, this sounds ridiculous in one sense because here is God in person in our world. Why would you not listen to him? Why would you, if, if God has shown up in our world in the person of Jesus, why would you not want to bring your questions to him? Right? I mean, seriously, like, I've got some questions for God. I imagine you've got some questions for God. Why would you not want interaction with Jesus? And then why would you not want the kind of peace that he brings? Because as you read the story of the Gospels, the peace of Christ that we just were passing to one another, by the way, is not just um, a peace of contentment. It, it is that. But it, it's justice. It's goodness, it's beauty, it's healing, it's restoration, it's wholeness in every conceivable way. It is a world that thrives, and not just for some, but for all. Why would I not want that? But when you read through the story of Mark, as we're doing this fall and this year, really, you're going to see in just 
episode after episode that there's always opposition to Jesus. There's always opposition to his story. Why? Because when I just think about my own life and you think about your own life, it is not uncommon that I find myself sort of throwing my hand up to Jesus and saying, go no further. I don't want to think about this in connection to this part of my life. I want to reserve parts of my life for just tuck, right? And I, I don't want his full engagement. And I don't even want the kingdom he brings. I want the kingdom that I want, right? I want the dreams that I have. I want the good life that I have that I've designed and thought of for myself. That's what I want the kingdom to be. I just want Jesus to agree with me. But guess what? He doesn't because he's, his, he's God in person in our world. And he's doing something that is unstoppable. And the question for us is, will we be open to that which he is doing? So we just read a text that begins to explore, I think, the theme of Jesus' authority, right? And the moment you begin to talk about authority, some of us get uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I don't know, have you ever taken, um, you know, you've taken all kinds of personality tests and, you know, I've, I've looked at my Enneagram number, I've looked at my Myers-Briggs, I know my Strength Finders, I know my, you know, I know my disc profile, you know, and you look at these things, and sometimes they'll, 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 some of you, and this would be true of me, you know, Tuck, you don't like to be controlled. That's, that's like in there, in one of those tests, right? Or maybe multiple of those tests, that I really don't like to be told what to do. That's a thing. And if you don't believe it, ask Stacy, ask Imelin, ask Connor, ask, ask Tucker, ask you know, Chris and Jonathan, ask, ask Bethany. You, know, you could ask people that work with me. You know, yeah, Tuck doesn't like to be controlled, right? I do it myself. I like to do it myself. Um, and you might be the same kind of way, that you, you don't want a God who interferes with your plans, with the life that you want to live. So let's think about authority. And authority in our world gets abused. We're afraid of it sometimes because we've seen people possess authority very, very poorly. And maybe you're someone who's been hurt and harmed by the authority of another. And so hierarchy doesn't work for you. Hierarchy feels scary to you because it is abusive. It's been abusive and you've experienced it as such. Jesus' authority is different. It's great, it's the greatest, it's tremendous authority, but he holds it very, very differently. Let's think about that through these scenes that Mark invites us into. Three, th three scenes, really. Jesus the teacher, Jesus the deliverer, and Jesus the healer. And so Jesus the teacher. So Jesus goes into the city of Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, he, he goes to synagogue. That's sort of equivalent to us going to church, right? That's what you did. If you were a part of Israel, you were a part of the Jewish community, and you were a believer in, in that which God was doing and had promised, and you were one who wanted to live their lives by the Scripture, you went to synagogue because that's where you would celebrate the God of Israel who's in your midst. And you'd it's a moment of reconnection with the story itself, right? And so, you, of course, what do you do? You read Scripture. You pray prayers. You sing songs. You read Scripture. You read Scripture. And that's what was going on here in this synagogal moment, right, of worship. Only that day, you know, Jesus is the preacher and not the regular scribes. Now, I translate it into our day. It's as though, you know, I think, you know, a scribe, what's a scribe? So a scribe is a person who studies the Bible. 
and they studied the Hebrew Scriptures. And a scribe would be someone who, in studying the Hebrew Scriptures, they're trying to understand it. Because usually when we read things, we're trying to understand the things we're reading. And if we have a role of teaching, you expect that you're understanding, not just for yourself, but you're trying to understand something in behalf of others. You're going to take to them, right? That's what you're going to do if you're the scribe or if you're the preacher like me or Chris or Jonathan, right? We read the Bible, we study the Bible uh, so that we can be in a context of Christian worship and talk about what we think texts mean. That's what we do, right? That's what a scribe did. They're not bad people. They're good. They're doing a good thing. But here's the thing that's so fascinating is that on this particular moment when Jesus gets up to speak, to teach, the people discern that it's different. In fact, Mark says they're astonished. And what's interesting to me about this is that Mark doesn't choose in this instance, right, to say this is what Jesus said. In other words, he doesn't bring us into the teaching itself. He doesn't bring us into the content of that which Jesus is saying. That's not what he does at all. He simply wants you to recognize that Jesus preached or spoke or taught in such a way that the people listening to him were astonished. Why? For the simple reason that he seemed like he had authority that the scribes did not possess. Now, what was, you know, verse 22, right? The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's the point. Now, when I read that, I ask a very simple and obvious, almost obvious maybe even ridiculous question. It's like, so what did authority look like when they heard it? Like, how did they know it was different from the scribes? Was Jesus louder? You know, I, I grew up in a certain religious tradition where preachers might get loud. Like, I don't like that, by the way, you know, but, but and I don't think I do that. And I, if, if I do, please tell me, because I'll stop. Um, but I, I grew up in a religious tradition where preachers would sort of shout. They would get loud, right? That's what they did. And the more excited they got about what they were talking about, the louder they got. It was almost as though when you've traveled to a foreign country where you don't speak the language and you feel like, if I just say it one more time but a little bit louder, right, they'll get it. They'll understand. No. Was that what was going on in this moment? Was Jesus just a dynamic presenter, right? Was he just... Like, he was just amazing in the classroom. Like, I've never seen anybody teach like that. Wow. I connected with him. There was charismatic connection. Is that what was going on in this moment, right? Is that how they knew that there's just this dynamism or charisma about Jesus? Was Jesus just a little bit more self-confident than the scribes? You know, the scribes were those, uh, did, they, did they get up and present and say, I, I think this means, I feel like this might be, is that what was going on, just a difference in confidence that, that they were experiencing? So a few things, right? So if you read over, if you jump over to Luke's gospel, for example, there's another early incident in Jesus' ministry in his life when he goes into a synagogue as well, and, he, and he, he reads the text of Isaiah, and it's that amazing text where God uh, speaks of a day that will come, right, when he'll proclaim good news to the poor, right? So in other words, all of the people that have not are going to hear good news of the presence of God in their midst. And all of the people that feel captive, right, 
to whatever it is. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's some form of institutional brokenness. Maybe it's people that, that feel captive to, to, to uh, institutional racism. Maybe it's people that feel captive to institutionalized uh, uh, sexism. Maybe, it, you know, you could just go on and on about all of the ways in which we feel captive to individual experiences of abuse of power and authority in our lives, or all of the ways that we feel captive to things that enslave us, like our own brokenness, or all the ways that we feel you know, captive to uh, personal encounters of abuse, right? Um, that scroll seems to, that, that part of Isaiah seems to acknowledge a day when it goes away. Because God has shown up in our world. And so what Jesus does in that moment, right, this moment of authority, he just simply says, what? Do you remember? He says, this reading is fulfilled in your presence. It's like this weird mic drop moment of Jesus. Like, that's all. That's all he says. Authority. Um, you might think of texts of Scripture where Jesus, where we're brought into his teaching itself. So think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's a place of, it's sort of like wisdom literature, right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's, it's, a, it's a series of sayings, right, that Jesus takes. And then there, what Jesus does very interestingly is he expands our understanding. He takes it to a new level. In other words, you've heard it said, but I say. He doesn't erase what was said or what was common understanding, but he takes it deeper, right? He extends it. He broadens it. So, by the way, this means more than you've thought. I mean, that's sort of what Jesus is doing. And there's a lot of surprise turns in how he does that in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you could jump over to like Luke chapter 24, which is another beautiful place where we learn about Jesus' relationship to Scripture itself, right? The Hebrew Scripture in particular. And there, right, that's that moment post Jesus' death uh, and post his resurrection because Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Only they don't recognize him as Jesus because most people don't imagine dead people rising, and so you're, you can't process who this is that's walking with you. But Jesus begins to, to sort of engage their depression because they feel profoundly at a loss that their Messiah has died. And so they're, what are they? They're back to the drawing board. It's another, it's another moment of waiting. Like, we're waiting for that Isaiah text to be fulfilled. That's what we're doing. We're waiting for the kingdom of God to come through some other being, some other Messiah, some other Christ. And there what Jesus does, which is quite amazing, is Jesus begins to connect the dots of Scripture to himself. And essentially what he's doing, he's saying, look, the trajectory, right, of all that you've been reading and all these previous interactions that people in Israel have had with God, they've all been leading to this moment when the Messiah would be crucified, when he would die, and when he would rise again. And Jesus, he's teaching them with authority, right? He's connecting these dots to himself. The difference between Jesus' teaching and that of the scribe, it's an important thing to think about. It wasn't that Jesus was more intelligent. It wasn't that he was a better communicator. It wasn't that he'd studied more, he'd prepared better. It wasn't that he was a funnier sort of presenter or teacher. It wasn't that he just got loud when he stood up to speak or preach. It's something like which the, that, that's described by the author of Hebrews when he just sort of makes this, this sort of very simple claim that in the past, God spoke through a variety of means right? Prophets, for example. But in these last days, God has uniquely spoken in His Son. Jesus is God in person in our world. So, if you'd been a student of the Bible, 
you should expect to be surprised about this moment. God is in person in our world. Maybe 10 years ago or so, right after Marilyn Robinson's uh, novel, Home, came out, she was uh, speaking in Philadelphia at the, at the public library, and Stacy and I went because we're huge fans of Marilyn Robinson and loved the book Home and really all three of the novels that are related to one another. So we go to the event, and we're sitting in this, in this event, and uh, she does a reading of the novel, of parts of the novel there, and then there's a Q&A time where you know, regular folks like us get to ask questions, right? And so this guy rises up, goes to the mic, and he says, so it's been, it's been said that uh, the novel Home is a retelling of the prodigal son story. And he's like so clever, right? He's figured it out. And he gives this amazing maybe compliment or something, you know, to, to Marilyn Robinson. And her response, her comeback, was just ever so beautiful and right on the point. She said, I was not aware that the prodigal son story needed to be retold. Okay. Where do you go from there, right? You know? So here's the thing, right? Authors have a certain authority. They have a certain capacity to redirect. They have the ability to come back to say something whimsical or to, to sort of silence and redirect, right? And, and here is Jesus in our world that John describes as the Word made flesh. Now, here's the thing. I want you to think about this carefully. I want you to take it generously and carefully as well. Jesus Christ displaces whatever you think you know about the Bible. Jesus displaces whatever you think you know about the Bible. And that counted for then, for all of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, whoever studied or read Scripture. Jesus displaces what they thought they knew. Because when God shows up in person, He has that authority. He gets to redirect, he gets to expand, he gets to connect dots that you didn't know were connected or connectable. And that's true for us today too. Because at best what I do, what Chris does, what Jonathan does, or what any other teacher of the Bible does, is they try to say things that get to the story of Jesus. And if we don't do that, if we don't somehow connect with Jesus himself, with that which God ultimately says physically, in person, in our world, in the life of Jesus, right? If we don't do that, then we are calling you to think about a different authority because that's the point. It's a lot like what we looked at last week when John the Baptist, right, who studied scripture, by the way, right, and John the Baptist, prophetic figure, right? He knows scripture. He has words from God. He's proclaiming God's coming kingdom. He's trying his best to reconnect Israel with the actual promises of God, right? That's what he's trying to do. But John says, what about himself? I'm not the point. I'm not the focus. If you've ever been around a dynamic uh, pastor, preacher, um, and I've, I've worked with some of those people, right? Um, if you've ever been around people that are dynamic, one of the things that happens to leaders who are really gifted at teaching or preaching is that we, I'm, I'm not going to claim myself of that, but we, you know, those persons, how about that? I'm going to be able, those persons have the capacity to sort of displace Christ. Because what happens when you hear someone that 
explains things in a way that the, light, that the penny drops, right? The light goes on. You, you sort of see things or you realize things that you hadn't previously realized is you get fixated on them sometimes and we think they're the point. Um, I, I remember moments in my own life when, when I've been devastated because of the death of some great pastor. And it's not just because of the relationship. It's because nobody said it the way they said it to me. But here's the thing. The point is Jesus. And that's what this is about. Will you become a person who listens to Jesus and who lets all of these other sort of connectors, right, these, these sort of pass-throughs, and that's all I am, and that's all Chris is, and it's all Jonathan. We're pass-throughs, right? We're, we're meant to sort of become a context in which you meet Jesus, not, not just me when we're doing this stuff called teaching the Bible. Jesus, the Word made flesh, He displaces what we think we know then and now because the point is relationship with Him. It's not what we think we understand. It's about who he actually is and what he's doing. A Christian is someone that begins to open up to the real Jesus, and you are astounded by him, by him. Now, Jesus the teacher. So, second thing, Jesus the deliverer. So, I want you to imagine yourself in the synagogue there that day, right? Um, And you were the one who was astounded by the teaching of Jesus, who was in front of you by surprise, because it wasn't one of the regular folks, right? The cadre of people. Um, but, and so there you are in that midst. Now, what, what Mark now tells us in this little sort of telling of this, this moment of worship is that right in the midst, there was someone who was kind of out of their mind. Uh, they weren't in their right mind. They weren't in the right spirit. And they, there was something that was very disruptive about their presence. And so this individual that is described then as being, right, filled or possessed by an unclean spirit begins to shout out, like as Mike so beautifully did when he was reading the scripture this morning, right? He begins to shout out, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you, what do you have to do with us? Now, all right, you've shown up for worship. Imagine that happening this morning. Like just I can't put you back in, we're not time travelers, so I can't take you back there. I can't take you that geographical moment, right? I can't take you into that, real, that moment of the synagogue of worship, but there you are in the midst, and someone rises or sits and just does something profoundly disruptive, maybe even rude, maybe even uh, offensive, right? Have you ever been in a worship service where that happens? I have. That's the kind of moment you're in, and they're shouting at Jesus, you know, what do you have to do with us? It's almost as if they had, that what Jesus had just done in demonstrating his authority as one who teaches, that it had brought a disturbance in the force, right, into the reality of the world. The fabric of the universe is being changed because of Jesus' presence. And so this person that's somehow connected to demons and evil spirits feels the disruption and quakes, right, and says this thing. And in that moment, what do they do? They sort of push back and they, you know, the, the Spirit names Jesus, right? I know who you are. I, I just shouted, sorry. <laughs> I know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. You're the Holy One of God. I know who you are. Funny story. Sort of funny. So about... I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, sitting in a staff meeting here, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't know why 
you know, every once in a while I'll have these like really humble moments and vulnerable moments where I actually want to know what people think. And, um, and so I asked the staff, I said, so, hey, what's it like to work with me or something like that? I don't even remember what I asked, but, but Drew Motter, some of you remember Drew. So Drew said, oh, we know when you're frustrated, Tuck. I'm like, well, tell me more, you know? And he said, you start naming the animals. I said, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, you're like, uh, you're like Adam in the garden, you know, you start naming the animals. I said, what do you mean? I start naming the animals. I said, oh, you go, Drew, Jason, Chris. And you just start naming the animals. So I thought, you know, that's a little bit like those parental moments when you're really frustrated with your kids or your parents are really frustrated with you. And it's like, Rudolph, Tucker Bartholomew. Yeah, my name's, my first name's Rudolph, by the way. Um, and you, you know, you just do that. You've done it with your kids. Or me, it's like, Connor Tucker, Emily. And what do you do? You're frustrated, so you're calling everybody out. You're naming, you're naming the animals. You're getting control. And so maybe this is a little bit like that, that the, that the demon is sort of lashing out at Jesus, you know, take you back. I'm going to take back what you just took from me, this rip in the force, the fabric of the universe. Now, so, and what Jesus does in that moment, right, is he does an exorcism on the spot. Okay, that's weird because most of us aren't in the habit of sort of experiencing exorcism. We'd rather be as far away from those kind of things as we could. Uh, we are not in the habit in our world, in our life, in modern life, of seeing demons under, ro- under, ro- under rocks, and I'm not suggesting you should. Um, and we don't look at individuals that we experience that, are, that, that we experience in some way disturbed or disorienting in their own spirit or mind. We don't look at them necessarily as persons who are sort of deeply connected to evil. But here's what we do. And we do this every single Sunday at City Church. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. When we hit the point in our service, in our liturgy, when we begin to recite the Lord's Prayer, we say every single week that line, deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You have just participated in a moment like that. The moment you take those words to your lips, Because what you and I recognize in that moment is that our personal struggles and experiences in this world now and in the past, and perhaps our struggles that are specifically coming up in this coming week, that they cannot be confined or limited to natural occurrence, that there's some possibility that we participate in and we live in a world of spiritual struggle, that there's conflict in that spiritual struggle between good and evil. And we recognize that on our own, individually or collectively, that we do not have the wisdom and we do not have the power and we do not have the strength to actually encounter it in a way that fixes or undoes it. And so what do we do? We cry out to God because of our connection with Jesus who has authority. And we piggyback on him. We ride his coattails and we ask God to deliver us from evil, to ultimately and in this moment cut the cord of our own connection to the brokenness of this world that ultimately is connected to evil. We do that every single week. Jesus' authority, the good news of his rule that is announced in the world, 
that has long been dominated by sin and brokenness. And when you think about that sin and brokenness in our world, you have to admit, I think, that some of the occurrences of brokenness and sin in our world is connected to evil. We can't explain how it came out. You know, I, I, I pick up things and read all the time, or I see news feeds that pass through my desk or pass through my you know, cell phone or whatever, and you do the same. But you know, the danger of that sometimes is you just forget where you read something, and that, that happened to me this week. And so I read this weird statistic, and I even sort of think I remember the statistic itself, but it was this. It was a poll that asked the question of what percentage of people think human beings are born innately good. And the poll was exceedingly high. It was something like 80% of 80% of the population thinks that people are born ultimately good. Now, and I know and I get that when you see a baby, you can't help but say the same thing, right? I, I, absolutely. And I'm not going to challenge that for a moment. I'm not even going to really challenge it at all. But I am going to say this, that one of the things you know about children that are born into the world is it doesn't take long for them to begin to reflect the brokenness. Because the adults and the grown-ups in the room don't live and act like good grown-ups. We don't love well. And it's not just that we don't interpersonally love well and connect well with people individually in our relationships, but we have built a world with all of its systems and all of its communities, its families, its institutions that reflect the brokenness back into the world. So you've heard of people talk about institutional poverty or you've heard of people talk about institutional racism or institutional sexism. What do we mean except that prejudicial treatments are built into the system? So that individuals coming up inside of that world can't help but be formed by that ruin and by that brokenness. Now the beauty of this particular text is that what Jesus is showing us through his own demonstration of authority, it's not just that he can go out of the desert and be tempted by the devil. It's that Jesus, when he is tempted by the devil, can withstand it personally. That's fine. But he's saying, I can withstand it for you. I can disconnect you from that. I can bring you into a different kingdom. I can bring you into a different rule, under a different authority so that you are changed. His authority like that. So where do you feel captive? Like what do you feel captive to? How do you feel stuck in some pattern of ruin and brokenness that's destroying your life and the life of people around you? How do you feel stuck in a pattern that perpetuates ruin and brokenness for other people? I mean, nobody wants to live there. Maybe because we are actually in touch with the good desires that we have inside of our hearts. We long for something better. Jesus is a deliverer. And Mark takes us into this story so that we'll see it. Now, finally, Jesus is a healer. So no sooner does Jesus get through this, what, what seemed to have been like a rather crazy day at church, right? <laughs> like, like unusual things happen, right? And his fame begins to spread. He's, you people feel like they want to know this about Jesus more, right? So then Jesus goes home. Uh, he goes to Simon Peter's home, right? And, and, uh, and there, when he arrives home, uh, Peter finds his mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever, right? We're not told more than that. But she's sick at home in bed with a fever. And um, now this isn't just a matter of sadness. Like Mark isn't just telling us this so that you think, oh, it's just too bad. Like, you know, Jesus gets home from church and dinner's not ready. That's not what this is. It's that 
you know, it's not like, you know, there's a little note, right? By the way, boys, you're on your own. You know, there's some cold cuts in the fridge, right? Do the best you can. That's not what this is. This is another moment for us to understand the compassion of Jesus for all the different kinds of ways that we experience the ruin of the, ruin of the world, in this case, in our bodies when we get sick. Have you ever lived with chronic illness? One of the things about chronic illness or even short-term illness is what does it do for you? It extracts you from community. And you're just brought away, you're brought away from the community. And one of the things about I know about it, you know, the effects of the effects of sickness in my own life when I've had sicknesses is that it extracts you from community. You still feel like you can be a part of things. And the moment you don't feel a part like you can be a part of things, what happens to you psychologically? What happens to you emotionally? Right? You can spiral further into sickness just because you're isolated from other people and their touch and their presence. Jesus cares about that. He wants to undo that. And here in this particular moment, a very simple moment of healing, Jesus just goes into the room, takes her hand, lifts her up, and the fever is gone, and she immediately begins to serve. Now, this is interesting. Because we live in a, a very enlightened moment, right? And uh, so if, you, if you're prone to feminist readings of text, and that's not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, if you're prone to feminist readings of text, you could read this, and like, you know, my imagination would go somewhere like this. Well, of course, she served. That's what you do if you're a woman, all right? I mean, that's kind of, you could read that this way. Um, any high women fans out there? You ought to be. The album dropped last week. But the line from the song, Redesigning Women, running the world while we were cleaning up the kitchen. I heard that and I thought, there's something so sadly true about that. What's going on here in this particular moment? You see, Peter's mother-in-law is an interesting figure because we don't know her name. And there are other women that we're going to meet in Mark's gospel as we read it that we don't know their name either. But they are like profoundly important people in this gospel. And maybe they're partly important because we don't know their name. Uh, there are other women, right? There's the woman with the hemorrhage that we'll get to later in future weeks where she touches the, the hem of Jesus' garment. You know that story, right? What has she done? She has, she has violated the law, right? That's what she's done. She's transgressed the laws around purity because she should never be out of the house where she could contaminate anyone else. She touches the Savior. And Jesus... His healing goes out from him. He didn't even even see her, but he knows she's been healed. And there suddenly she's restored, in a sense, to community. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful moment. We'll get there. There's that amazing moment when the Gentile woman, who's apparently heard that Jesus casts out demons, and she has a daughter that she believes to be possessed by a demon. And so she does what you do. You you try your best to sort of resource into Jesus, right? And so she wants Jesus, she wants Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus says this like wildly offensive thing, right? You can't give the food to the, to the dogs, right? Yeah, you know, you're, you're a Gentile dog, in other words, right? This is an offensive thing to say, right? We'll get there again. But very simply, she has like the most perfect comeback to Jesus. It's, it's like... Lord, don't you know? 
that even the dogs lap up the crumbs from underneath the table of the master? There's enough grace to go around. This is not a zero-sum world because you're here. Wow. What if the point that Mark is drawing us to in this space is that Peter's mother-in-law's response is the only right response to Jesus' authority to become a servant? It's the word that we use to derive deacons from. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10, Jesus is going to take that same word and he is going to say, all of you that think you're leaders, which would be a room full of men most likely, all of you that think you're the greatest, you must become a servant. You must become a servant. Her response is the response to Jesus. Her response is the defining characteristic of the way individuals with authority live life inside of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to build a kingdom in which people live differently with their relative power. So think about your story this morning. Think about your relative power. What do I mean? I mean, you have authority, right? You do. Uh, every one of you do. And so if you were to think about your authority on a scale of 1 to 10, like let's just say that you, it's a 1 to 10 scale, um, what is your relative authority? Maybe you're sort of, you've advanced in your career and your vocation, right? And so you're sort of up toward the 10 side. Maybe you're, you're still sort of in process and you're, you're down below, but your prospects are what? Your trajectory, right? Your agenda for your good life includes getting closer to the 10 side of having a little bit more authority, a little bit more power. And the way authority and power work inside of our broken world is what? Is that the more power you have, the more authority you have, the less contact you have with regular folk. And most of the time, as we achieve power and authority, what happens? What do we do with it? We want it to be turned in on ourselves because I'm mostly concerned about myself. I'm mostly concerned about what I can provide for myself. I'm mostly concerned, and maybe my kids, right? Okay, I'm going to expand a little bit further. I, I love my family, right? But you, you get the point is that we're in, our, in the world for ourselves. But what Jesus wants us to be in the world, and particularly inside of his world, is that we would be in it for others, that we wouldn't live selfishly with power or authority, that we wouldn't live possessively with power or authority. We wouldn't grasp at that which we've been given, but rather our hands would just be open, our fingertips spread wide, and it would just ooze from our hands because we're servants. One last thing. It's weird that Jesus does these amazing things, and he sort of concludes right, with this word to the demons. Okay, I can sort of understand his comments to the demons. Like, don't tell anybody what you know, right? It's, it's weird, right? They, uh, you know, what does he say? Verse 34, he's curing people. People are bringing people to him. He's casting out demons. And he would say, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And it's not just demons that he says this stuff to. Later on, he will heal people, like people, like you or like me, right? People. And he's going to say to them, don't tell anybody where this came from. That just sounds weird and counterintuitive to good PR. You take it where you get it. 
But Jesus doesn't. He tries to silence it, and people aren't good about being silenced, by the way. You'll see that too, right? It seemed, but it seems so counterintuitive to the way we want to get the news out. Now, what's going on there? Uh, scholars call this the messianic secret. They speak of it in that way. There are lots of thoughts about what it might mean. But I, I want to just suggest one thing it might mean, and that is this, that Jesus doesn't want the wrong word to be out about him. He doesn't want people just to think he's a traveling magician. He doesn't want people to think he's got a nice bag of tricks. He doesn't want people to fill in the blank of his identity as Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of God, with their own meaning and understanding. He rather wants his life to stand in front as the definition of God's own self in our world. And I get that, and you get that. Because you hate it when someone puts you in their box. And Jesus refuses to be put in anyone's box because he's God in person in our world, the word made flesh. And so Jesus says, don't tell people. Why? Because the story's not finished. You don't know enough yet. You've not been brought enough in. You've seen three things here. Jesus is... Life's story culminates on the cross, which is the ultimate revelation of who God is. It's where we understand who God is the most is when Jesus dies at the hands of an abuse of authority. And until we get that part of the story, until we know love given in that way, until we know love that is raised up and celebrated by God's own self that way, we are in no position to become spokespersons for God, to put him in our own box. He gets to define himself. So the question this morning is just very simply this. Are you willing to interact with that Jesus? Are you willing for him to challenge your own misunderstandings? Are you willing to let him become one who completes your story and takes it to a different ending, a different conclusion than all of the things that have ever happened to you in life, as good or bad as they may be, all of the successes or the lack of success that you've had in your life? Are you willing to let the Jesus, who is the Christ, interact with your life and take your story to his conclusion? which means you and I will become persons who do what? Who take up our cross and we follow Jesus. In other words, we do that which Peter's mother-in-law did. We become servants. That's this text for us this morning. May God give us grace to hear him and to follow him to open up. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us as we think on these words, these amazing words and interactions from the story of Jesus himself, and would you create openness in our hearts that we would welcome his interaction, and would you awaken and open us to the kind of change and transformation that he desires for us, that we would live in the world in his likeness as servants of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.